Coming up on episode 70 of the Upful Life Podcast. Um, so I grew up with that music in my house. Fat Starmo, like I said, from the time I was a baby. And everything else, you know, it's like Lee Dorsey and the me- I saw the meters when I was 12. So I'm always related to New Orleans music, Mardi Gras Indian music, brass band music, all that stuff. And it has uh, its root. There's a lot of its roots that are African roots, Caribbean roots. And uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we did in New Orleans. Not we, but the earlier generation, the earliest generations of R&B, rock and roll, blues musicians that Jamaicans were listening to and trying to imitate. And that's how reggae and ska came about, was them basically taking these, uh, these New Orleans records and and also, in all fairness, you know, records from Motown and Memphis and Miami and stuff like that, and, and uh, listening to that and playing them at dances, but then trying to put their own spin on it, which ended up being Scott. So uh, for me, I always wanted to do something, you know, with reggae again. I just didn't know what. I didn't want to be like in this position as an old white guy trying to defend why I'm playing music that's kind of not really part of my culture or whatever. Well, I started realizing more and more, you know, it may not be part of my ancestral culture, but it is part of my personal culture. And it's part of my personal background that I did this for many years and worked with lots of Jamaican musicians and toured all over the world. with it. So that's a part of me. You know, whether you like it or not, it's a part of me. I, I'm not front, you know. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 70, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studio in Oakland, California. From Oakland to Philly to back to Oakland, your boys doing things. So grateful you are tuning in. The Upful Life Podcast is proudly sponsored by IMAVL, also known as Independent Arts and Music of Asheville. IMAVL has been preserving and promoting the creative community in Asheville, North Carolina since 2012, gradually watching Asheville become one of the hottest music scenes in the country. IMAVL does all they can do to support those making noise in Asheville and archive history in the making. With live stream installations in several area venues, 
IMAVL streams shows six nights a week, often several shows on any given night. Making Asheville, North Carolina the very first city in the world with its music scene aggregated into one channel. Over 3,500 concerts in the archives, national to local acts. There's so much to explore. Not that long ago, IMAVL streamed seven stages across four days straight for the first annual multi-venue AVL Fest. Based out of the world-class Echo Mountain Recording Studios, IMAVL produces an original series called The Echo Sessions. It's six seasons deep on PBS with artists from Eric Krasno to La Special, Billy Strings, Leftover Sam and Marcus King, The Motet, and so many others. The streams are free to watch, a free service for the bands at each venue that IMAVL has production installed in. Now, IMAVL is a nonprofit, and fans can donate to their efforts to support the arts by heading to their website, imavl.com. Or you can scan a QR code on a recent show from the IMAVL archive. This organization is passionate about the city they live in and its amazing musical community. They've built such a community in a little valley in the mountains, and then IMAVL does what they can do to support their friends and family and share the magic of Asheville, North Carolina with the world. IMAVL.com. Don't stay home without it. Shout out to my man Josh Blake and the whole IMAVL team. We appreciate the support, the connection. Proud to be aligned with y'all. Up Full Life Podcast, Episode 70. Thank everybody for tuning in to episode 70, the Up for Life podcast. I know it's been a couple weeks overdue. I feel like I say that every two or three episodes, but this has been a crazy time uh, for a lot of reasons. And uh, first, I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, that what's going on in the world right now, particularly the Middle East and Israel, Palestine, etc., is really heavy. I've actually had to try to make this podcast and, and record these sections and during this week of intense conflict and death, emotional stuff. So I just wanted to take a moment in the beginning and just kind of acknowledge that, uh, yeah, this is a really fucked up time and everybody has a lot of deep-rooted feelings and convictions and, you know just wanted to honor that. I'm mean, is not going to get into the issues. I'm not going to make anything about this pod colored by that energy other than to acknowledge its existence and maybe provide a program that can act as some kind of uh, diversion or distraction or 
give somebody an opportunity to revel in their passions and culture and music and community and the narrative arc of uh, an artist's journey all the above um, but I did not want to not acknowledge it because honestly it's consumed my whole consciousness and attention since that festival was attacked and, and, and that hits close to home regardless of where you fall on why things are the way they are over there just you know I'm a festival guy and, and that's my world and my universe and my community and how I know so many people and how I move through life is so interwoven into festival culture and to think of these uh, people's last moments in the bliss of a Psytrance festival and swiftly changes into a nightmare. So uh, just going to take a moment and honor everybody who has been killed, who is being oppressed, who is involved in this conflict in any capacity through their family, through their own hearts, through their consciousness and convictions. Just pray for peace. beloveds we're back and i know it's been a long time since i left you without a dope pod to step to but i want to thank you for letting me be myself again thank you for tuning in thank you for supporting please if you are digging this podcast smash that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice And if you have the time and are so inclined, please rate and review the Upful Life podcast, preferably on Apple Podcasts, but really any platform you use to listen. It does a great deal to steer those algorithms in this direction and bring the Upful Life podcast new listeners, new ears, new souls. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. So thank you to everybody who has left a rating and review on the Up for Life podcast, Apple Podcasts, and elsewhere on the interwebs. You can reach me directly if you have any comments or feedback or suggestions, constructive criticisms, or you just want to holla at your boy. I love to hear from the people. Send me an email, b.getz at upfullife.com. You can also drop me a note 
about something you loved about a recent pod, and I'll enter you to win some Let Us Praise merch. Thanks to my man Joe W. out in Hawaii for the lettuce gear. <clears throat> so yeah, you can post a review on Apple Podcasts and screenshot that to me. Send me an email or just drop me a note via email and I'll enter you in to win. Now, if you want to support all things Up Full Life, I appreciate that. I'm in gratitude to anybody. So you can send me a few dollars for making you holla by going to upfullife.com. There's a support button there. You can send me a few bucks. It is much appreciated. Um, I've been up to a whole lot since we last spoke at the end of August. Uh, last minute trip to the mud apocalypse at Burning Man, which was a crazy time. I posted a bit about it on social. And I also wrote an article about Kruder and Dorfmeister's 30th anniversary U.S. tour, which began with their Virgin Sojourn to Black Rock City for Burning Man. So you can check that piece out on UpfulLife.com exclusively. And to my delight and, and eternal gratitude, Kruder and Dorfmeister shared the article on their official socials and called it brilliant and thanked me personally, which was just an incredible attaboy. So give thanks to Kruder and Dorfmeister. That's called... Uh, to weather the rain, dusty dispatches from Kruder and Dorfmeister's 30th anniversary U.S. tour, Black Rock City to the Bay. It's a lengthy piece. I'm very proud of it. Thanks to everybody who checked it out already. Immediately after Burning Man, I went right to the Park City Song Summit for the second year. Uh, mental health, music culture, and community coalesce at Magical Park City Song Summit. That was on Live for Live Music. You can also find it on Upful Life. Shout out to Ben Anderson and ivpr and everybody who makes it happen for me out there in park city a very rewarding experience then i flew back to the bay for kruder and dorfmeister's uh, night with thievery corporation at the midway sf that's in the aforementioned article i did a feature on maria stark a winding journey to weightless weightless is her new lp it's her fifth solo album maria is a celestial ethereal magical empress singer songwriter bard and this is uh, some really just translucent witch folk of the highest order maria stark a winding journey to weightless the special released a new record called odd times and my feature article on that record the gains have been substantial with special releases fourth studio lp odd times you can find that on live for live music and upfullife.com and most recently, I did a feature on Judith Hill's triumphant hometown throwdown at Los Angeles Crossroads Festival. Live for live music and upfullife.com. I want to thank everybody who reads and, and listens and supports and gets behind all things Up for Life. These are crazy times in a lot of ways, and, and the uh, community support and feedback is like a battery in my back to keep going. So I'm grateful for y'all. Thank you for tuning in. I want to say a few things about a dearly departed drummer before we get into episode 70. Main guest coming up in just a few. For those of you wondering, that was 
a new live mini set from Ect, our favorite Belgian trap jazz mavens out there in Brussels. 2023 Into the Great Wide Open, 20-minute live Ect performance. You can find it on their YouTube. I've got it in the show notes. Now here comes a little tribute. take a moment and honor the life and times and legacy of renowned New Orleans drummer Russell Batiste Jr., who passed away on September 30 at the age of 57. Cause of death was a heart attack. Uh, Russell is one of the most influential and beloved and celebrated and pioneering drummers in the city of New Orleans history and drums in general unsung hero in some spaces but a king among men in the greatest musical city on earth a partial list of bands that russell batiste jr played in include the meters funky meters george porter jr and the run running partners dumpster funk bonorama papa grows funk who you're hearing from right now soul second line one of russell's originals with papa grows funk he also played with the wild magnolias the joe crown trio uh, Vita Blue with Paige McConnell and O'Teal Burbridge and his own orchestra from The Hood and Russell Batiste and Friends. Uh, I've seen Russell perform in numerous uh, combinations, most recently uh, Porter Batiste Stoltz PBS reunion show at Shaggy's New Orleans Crawfish Festival during Jazz Fest last year. Um, the outpouring of grief and love and reverence for Russell was unbelievable and heart-filling and beautiful in so many ways. And uh, the conversation I had with this episode's guest, Papa Molly, uh, took place before Russell passed. And we talk about a different dearly departed brother of Malcolm's. But I wanted to take a moment uh, and just celebrate and honor and eulogize Russell Batiste Jr. Now, I didn't know him personally. Uh, like I said, I've seen him perform two dozen-ish times, not to mention uh, a couple fist bumps here and there, a handshake. I've been introduced to him a time or two, but I didn't know him. But he seemed to know everybody in the music community, from fans to musicians to promoters. He was uh, just beloved uh, fixture in his community in New Orleans and the music community at large. The, the tributes that came in the wake of his passing, one after the next, from all the uh, iconic people from the city of New Orleans and peers and collaborators across the spectrum, you know. And uh, I just, you know, wanted to take this opportunity to, you know, show love to somebody who was such uh, an important uh, contributor and 
and teacher and student and uh, innovator with drums and, and there's so many different uh, tributes and eulogies and reflections on social and, and articles and so forth um, but I wanted to play something that I thought was very appropriate for this podcast which is uh, footage from a 2007 documentary where Russell Batiste and George Porter are sitting in Frenchie's gallery. Remember Frenchie, Randy Freshette? Uh, he was on the podcast a couple months ago. Visionary, pioneering, live art painter, amazing dude, friend of the pod, friend of mine now, I can say confidently. And uh, there is a couple minutes from a 2007 documentary called King of Oak Street about Frenchie. And Russell has a few words, a couple minutes, uh, about Frenchie. Again, this is Soul Second Line from Papa Girls Funk, one of Russell's original compositions. And now let's hear from Russell talking Frenchie before we get into episode 70 of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. We are lifting up the life and times of Russell Batiste Jr. Yes, indeedy. Hello, world. It is I, Russell Baptiste, funk master from uh, Funky Meters, Vita Blues, the Baptiste Brothers Band, Papa Grows Funk, Russell Baptiste Orchestra from the Hood. Hmm, you name them, I've been there. Tell y'all something y'all don't know. I've gave Frenchie his first brush solo at a Papa Grows Funk gig. Uh, it was supposed to be a drum solo. And what I did is I, I stood up. And I pointed to Frenchie and I screamed on the mic, you got it, Frenchie. And Frenchie took a brush solo, which you just went totally mad and probably painted this one. But well, see, it makes me feel good because, you know, when I'm playing and if I see Frenchie all of a sudden up there and he's going off, it's like, wow, I'm making him move. So it lets me know that I'm doing, you know, handling my end of the New Orleans tradition of uh, making the music come to life. And all of the hottest bands that come out of New Orleans play at this club called the Maple Leaf here in New Orleans. And there's only one guy that goes into the Maple Leaf that they let in there with a canvas and paint and That's do so his thing. Right? And his name, ladies and gentlemen, Frenchie. Thank you. <laughs> Frenchie is the, the only artist that uh, we give a paint solo to. Like I take a drum solo, George take a bass solo. When I see Frenchie in the house, Say, break it down. We're gonna give Frenchie a solo. And I say, hit it, Frenchie. And then the next thing you know, you see Frenchie. And that's a Frenchie solo, invented by me, Russell Baptiste. <laughs> Let's do a scene like Prince. You ask me a question, I'm gonna tell George, and then George will tell you what I'm gonna ask. What I say. <laughs> Honey, I believe you when you say 
much more The clouds and shadows turning blue and red People come and people go And everything will pass But all the joy we used to know Just fades away so fast It is my honor and privilege to welcome the great Papa Molly to episode 70 of the Up for Life podcast. And you know, I don't know Malcolm personally previous to this conversation, but uh, I feel like I know him real well now. He's a New Orleans singer and songwriter, guitarist, producer, multifaceted career, explored many areas of American and world music, big reggae guy. And he takes us through his journey, even pre-reggae, his, his, his childhood in music, his family, his journey as a troubadour, his, his sojourn through reggae music in Jamaica, back to the States. Um, he makes roots rock, Americana, New Orleans-style music, had Seven Walkers with Billy Kreutzman and George Porter Jr. Now he's got this great project called Shantytown Underground in New Orleans, which is really deep throwback, like quintessential roots reggae mixed with, you know, New Orleans soul. And uh, Yano is on keys in that group, and I loved them at Jazz Fest. And, you know, I've been paying attention to Papa Mali for several years now, so I figured Carpe Diem. I hit him up. He was interested in talking. Unfortunately, it was uh, right after Brad Hauser, his friend and, and collaborator, bassist, had passed away suddenly. So we start the conversation with some touching and, and colorful and moving reflections about Brad Hauser. Before we even get into Malcolm Papa Molly's musical and, and life journey. So it's a deep uh, exercise in musicology. It's also... A, a, a sense of eulogizing and mourning and also celebrating the life and and we're also celebrating malcolm's life in the present tense so uh papa molly on episode 70 of the up for life podcast it's a long and winding road that touches on many of the genres and influences and cultures dear to me and i am certain it will translate similarly to you listeners so thank you for tuning in here comes papa molly uh, from New Orleans. With that, let's get into the conversation. All right, all right. Well, it is a long time in the making. I've been a big fan of this gentleman going back, you know, close to 20 years now. And it's an honor and a privilege to welcome the great Papa Molly to the Up for Life podcast. Hey, man. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the feelings are mutual, my friend. I'm grateful that you made some time. I know you're a busy cat with a lot of irons in the fire, especially lately. So super stoked to talk about all your musical tentacles and your, you know, colorful journey through so many different scenes and generations and geography. But I really wanted to start on something a bit more solemn, but also beautiful. Um, and that is the life and times of your dear friend, Brad Hauser, who transitioned yesterday. I read a, a very touching human reflection that you wrote for him 
So uh, if you're so inclined, please just talk a little bit about Brad, the guy, the player, your relationship, wherever you want to take it. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, it's, um, yeah, very sad thing because it, it, it happened really suddenly, unexpectedly. I've just got to, um, you know, our, our mutual friend, Rob Kidd, who's, you know, he's like my brother, really. I've traveled probably over a million miles with him. Um, and Rob called me, I guess it was, uh, I don't know, it was maybe Sunday or Monday, can't remember, but said that Brad had had a stroke and that uh, he wasn't doing too well, but that we all, you know, everybody hoped that he would be able to recover and with therapy, hopefully be okay, you know. But um, but then I got called the next day saying it was not, it was maybe he had another stroke and it was doing worse. I'm not sure the exact details, so I don't want to speculate. I do know this, that Brad was just a very sweet human being and a really amazing musician. And I played with him many, many times over the years and known him since the eighties. And uh, it's just uh, very sad to think about a world without him in it. And um, the music community, um, I'll say, especially in Austin, you know, but really our musical relationship wasn't restricted to that. I worked with him on all over the country in many different places, including New Orleans here. And uh, when I lived in Austin, you know, that was, I worked with him a good bit there, but continued to work with him any chance I could uh, after I moved here 12 years ago. Um, so yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say other than uh, he wasn't, good friend he was a great human being and just one of the best musicians i've ever known and worked with and very um very funny guy i mean he had kind of a he could have this kind of thing where you would think he was cynical but then you knew really that his heart was too big to be cynical he but he uh he uh i think he was a little bit cynical about um things which he felt maybe uh, you know, our government or people supporting people in our government weren't doing enough or people just were too, you know, people in general, human beings just too, uh, too damn st stupid to do the right thing, which you know, anyway, so maybe he was a little bit cynical about that kind of stuff, but for the stuff, matters of the heart, things that really mattered, um, he was 100% a pure, beautiful soul that, you know, you could feel the love coming from him at all times. I loved his sense of humor so much. It was very, uh, he had a great wit about him. I, I, and I, I um, spent a lot of time on the road with him. I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, um, in rehearsal rooms with him, on stage with him. Um, always had, you know, always had something great to add to the conversation, whether it was we were talking whether we were joking, whether we were just hanging around, hanging out and getting a bite to eat. But um, especially when we were on stage musically, his conversation, his musical conversation was always interesting and always kept everybody on their toes, you know, because he was so good. And so, uh, well, so realized as a musician, uh, he just, uh, you never had to explain to him what the, vibe we were you know like oh we're going after this vibe or whatever 
he instinctively knew that he was so well versed in so many different types of music that there was nothing that really seemed like it was a big challenge to him. He fit right in the groove, always added something extra to it. Yeah. I'm going to miss him a lot. <laughs> I don't doubt it, my friend. That was a beautiful reflection and it really kind of helps you get a look at who the guy was in the van or at band practice outside of just the stage. Us as fans, we see the performances and hear the music, you know, seen uh, Dead Kenny G's a few times, listened to the Critters record more times than I can count. One yeah. thing that I think of with Brad that I don't know that everybody knows, but if you put two and two together is that, of course, he's responsible for the baseline on uh, Edie Brokell and New Bohemians, uh, What I Am, which is driven by that iconic baseline. The, the song is, is. motored by the yeah. baseline. And then Brand Nubian uh, in the early 90s, major hip hop act out of New York City, made a song out of just the sample of the baseline. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah, I'm sure you know, but just reinvented the the track for another generation, another culture. So, I mean, the man is responsible for like twice over iconic genre defining song. In yeah. addition to all the tentacles you just described and all the different projects he had a hand in. Bohemians existed and brought Edie on. It was, it was not the other way around, which I did not know that. That is absolutely correct. In fact, uh, so the story goes that she was in the audience and they were, she was kind of too shy to get up and sing and somebody bought her a shot of whiskey or something and she got up the nerve to get up there and sing. And that was, from that point on, I think she was in the band. So. Uh, that's a great story. And uh, yeah, he will be certainly missed. Uh, yesterday, the last, really the last few days, I guess since since Sunday, uh, the outpouring of support, grief, you know, frustration. Every uh, everybody who loved him, and it seemed like a lot of people. Uh, yeah, really, really hurting and grieving. And that's kind of why I wanted to start at the top there because I wanted to honor that and him. Yeah, I, I, he was. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things when I was talking earlier about his humor and his um like i say sometimes kind of a you he kind of sometimes spoke the words of somebody that was cynical but you knew that he really wasn't i think it was more like cosmic 
humor, cosmic irony. He was a very enlightened individual and very intelligent. And he, um, you know, therefore, when he saw ignorance, he went, he called it out. <laughs> but he did so in a way that was always really funny. Not like a mean or superior sort of thing, you know, more like just funny. Right on. Right on. Well, he will, he'll still live on in our record players and our mind's eye, lots of videos. And um, like I said, it was just beautiful to see yourself and numerous other people just uh, to purge their feelings for Brad in fits of, of, of love or grief, or whatever. And, and it's heavy. We see a lot of that, like a lot of eulogizing going on as we get older. And I mean, you're a generation older than I am, but I'm 45. And it's just something yeah. that I'm encountering over and over again. And to see when, when somebody like yourself just takes the time to open their heart and share, whether it's on a podcast or on social media or even through song, um, it's, it's, we learn. We learn from, from those uh, contributions. I just want, they're not in vain or they're not just for you. I don't just learn facts. I have a greater understanding of who the man was through those reflections. Yeah. And, and I think I read some... I can't remember who posted it yesterday. I should probably have paid more attention, but somebody said something in effect that like he was one of those people that he had experienced fame and success in the music business and truly didn't give a fuck about that at all. It was the music, you know, it was like like notoriety, success, fame didn't mean a thing to him. You know, being um at a level where he was able to play with the caliber of musicians that he often played with, that meant something to him. And he was never, never, ever like giving you his uh, B game. He was always giving you his A game, you know, you know how, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about like, that's just all they do is they, you know, whether it's the guy that, that threw the touchdown pass in, in his high school football game, or, you know, the guy that like had, one hit back in the day, and then that's all he talks about, and that pretty much defined who Brad was not that person at all. He he acknowledged the fact that you know that they had a really big success right out the gate with that record, but there was never a trace of bitterness or like regret or remorse or anything like that that I could pick up on. I think that that just speaks to the kind of guy that he likely was, and and you referenced in your in your post about him about the deep alum entertainment district in the eighties. Uh, and, and you have roots there. I know you also have deep roots in Louisiana and also, uh, internationally Jamaica. So where does the, the, cause you weren't even Papa Molly yet, I'm sure. So mm -hmm. where does Malcolm's journey start as a musician? Is it in childhood? Is it, uh, you know, give us the kind of bricks of the foundation. Like a lot of baby boomers, you know, um, I'm I'm 66, just so you know, I'm 66 years old. Um, I was five years old when I got my first guitar. And um, the reason I got it was because I was just, from the, as long as I can remember, I just was like obsessed with records and with, you know, people that were playing music on television and, the radio and anything that like had guitar music and it. it just was, was, I was crazy about it. The first, I remember um, there was a kid in my neighborhood who was 
considerably older. He was like probably 12 or 13 and I was about five or six. And he had this little garage band and they were playing something by the Ventures. And I, I'd heard my brother and my older sister playing Ventures record. So, you know, walking past this garage in my neighborhood, I heard the song, you know, Walk, Don't Run coming out of the garage. Immediately had to go investigate that. And um, him and his, you know, little teenage garage band were, were playing. But um, the other kids in the band, you know, like were like, oh, you know, get that kid out of here. But but this one guy, you know, he's like, no, no, let him let him hang around, let him hang around. And then afterwards, he let me hold his Fender guitar and showed me how to play a couple of little licks, you know. And uh, now from that point on, I was just hooked. And so I just, you know, was bugging my mom 24-7, get me a guitar. So I think the first, well, yeah, I know the, the very first guitar she got me was this thing that was made out of plastic but it but it actually had it had steel strings on it and it had a bridge it had real tuners on it so you could actually tune it up and make noise on it but it was it did kind of look like a toy and uh surprisingly enough you know i mean as i think i think for my seventh birthday my dad got me a real wooden guitar that he bought in mexico that was actually a handmade guitar he's you know he later told me that he only paid like about 25 us dollars for it which at the time was like 300 pesos or something you know i remember seeing the tag on the guitar when he gave it to me um that said 300 and i thought wow 300 that's a lot of money you know but i mean even 25 dollars in the 60s for a kid was a lot of money so <laughs> but it was it had, it had my initials carved on the headstock i wish i still had that guitar. But that was the first real guitar i got and then a couple of years later i you know begged and pleaded until they got me a cheap electric guitar with a, a Sears silver tone amplifier. And, you know, I never looked back. It was just, I was, it was like from a very, very young age, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I never even thought for a second that I had other options. <laughs> that was it. This is free for it. Yeah. Was, well, no, we're talking 60. We're talking 60s. We're not early. I was in 60. I was seven years old and and uh, 19, no, six years old in 1963. So uh, so the Beatles hit in 1964, and that pretty much cemented the deal for me. And then after that, I remember a kid in my neighborhood who was also a little bit older. He he uh, said something like, yeah, the Beatles are okay, but the Rolling Stones are really better. You know, and Of course, you know, I kind of, anybody that was a little bit older than me that knew something about music, I just believed them instinctively. Okay. Well, I guess that's, I guess that's, that's a fact then, you know? So I'm, I was never one of these people where it was like the Beatles or the Stones. They were both great as far as I was concerned, but I, the Stones did become my favorite though, um, very quickly.
I wanted to ask, because this always fascinates me, uh, especially when we get to talk about reggae, but just in general, in the mid-60s, late-60s, when you are really hearing music as a young person for the first three times, how are you consuming it? Are you crowding around like a radio in the family room? Are you meeting up with buddies and, and transistor radio out in the park? How did you like seek and consume music? Well, all of the above. I actually, my um, when my mother, my mother was a music freak too. She, you know, we. I still love a lot of the music that she loved. You know, uh, she was turning me on to stuff like Roy Orbison and um, the early Elvis records, and um, she, you know, she also loved uh, Louis Armstrong. She loved oh, so many, so many great singers. You know, like. She anybody that had uh, you know she was big in Frank Sinatra and of course those records that he did with Count Basie and stuff those were always playing in my house big big you know influence on me um, but then my I had an older brother and sister that were also into music and mostly the kind of the uh, my sister beat more her and her girlfriends were more like into the top hits of the day which in my case included like some some of the early rock and roll records um, I can remember hearing. You know, like Bobby Charles, who I'm still just a huge fan of, hearing him, his version of See You Later, Alligator. and See you later, alligator. After wild crocodile. See you later, alligator. After wild crocodile. All that stuff in my house when I was really, really, really young, like just some of my earliest memories are hearing records by Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and all that. So uh, that had a big influence on me. Then my brother, seven years older than me, he had really hip musical taste from as long as I could remember. You know, he he had and, and there was always records like my sister had her own record player. My brother had his own record player. My mother had her own record player. And then I inherited a record player when I was still really young, too. Like, one of them got a better record player, so I got the old one. And uh, so there was always records, buying records, going to the store to get records, looking, you know, reading the, the charts in the magazine so that I would know what was going on. And then television, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show had great, uh, great acts on. There was a show called Shindig, which I've just started finding these old reruns out there amazing you know the shindig house band had well billy preston was the keyboard player in the shindig house band glenn campbell and some of the other members of the wrecking crew were also in the band and then they have these great guests on you know and uh so that was huge to me i mean i was like i practically lived for it it's like the only thing that i can really 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 remember being super excited about um you know, knowing that my favorite group was going to be on Shindig or going to be on Hullabaloo or going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. And I would just like wait until that moment and just be planted right in front of the TV with my eyes this big around, you know, just soaking it all up. Um, I love the Beach Boys. That was my, my first record that I ever bought was the Beach Boys Surfer Girl. When I was, it, it had just come out. I was six years old and that record had just come out and I bought it with my, saved up my allowance and bought the album surfer girl and there was a song on that record in my room which is classic now of course but i remember um my sister had just gone off to college which meant that my brother got her bedroom and i got 
to have a bedroom by myself for the first time. And I remember bringing him that record and putting it on and that song in my room came on and it was magical. It was like, it was like Brian Wilson had written it for me. They're always in my room listening to the, in my room, but. There's a now a classic song right but at the time it was the first time i'd ever heard it and it was just it transported me i was uh, i realized i realized that mu music could do that could take you to another place even as it's even at such a young age even at six years old i, I had this experience that was moving and spiritual you know wow that what a magical memory just young you and and feeling like yeah, like Brian Wilson wrote in my room for you in your brand new bedroom, your very first record. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cosmic. Let's be honest. It was very cosmic and very proper. And I still have that same original copy of that record that I bought. I still have it. Wow. And I, and I, still, I still listen to it. And it still sounds great. I, I guess because I had older siblings, I always took pretty good care of my records. You know? So there's, I can still listen to records that I bought when I was a kid. Lucky you, because most people can't do that. Uh, certainly not after the whole like DJ thing and scratching and stuff. But I, I'm lucky. <laughs> I have a bunch of records from my folks, and I'll inherit some more at some point in time. Um, and I do remember like we had like a piece of furniture that was the record player, huge, took up like most of the wall, and some of the records yeah. fit inside. And it, it was you know had like a wood finish and uh, antiquated speaker. And that was really awesome. Like me and my grandparents and parents would sit around and listen to records. So I have a vague kind of connection to that, but it wasn't like my primary method of consuming music. What did jog my memory were the TV shows. Because when I was growing up, there were two shows I looked forward to. One was Yo! MTV Raps. The other one was Headbangers Ball. So you had to like yeah. and make sure you got home for those, have the tape in the VCR. And so much of my uh, understanding of the outside world came through those uh, channels for better or for worse. Uh, so I get that. Like with my mom would talk about the American bandstand, Ed Sullivan show. Um, so the lineage is totally there. And I was also thinking about how much you get inside songs when you're really young, when you have a limited amount to listen to, or you, your brain is just constantly developing and processing and understanding. And you listen to the foundation for modern contemporary pop music, rock and roll, et cetera. Like what was your first sounds from the Beach Boys to uh, Fats Domino and and Roy Orbison and I mean the, that is the bedrock of everything that's come afterwards you know in every direction yeah. so that's a really fortuitous and 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 beautiful for you to have that sort of like a subconscious education in the greats of the of this art. Well, I should also mention you were asking you know what what. Um format was I listening to music and I did like I say I bought records constantly I saw the shows on TV which I look forward to um but I'll never forget this that I, I think when I was about either seven and a half or eight years old my dad bought me a transistor radio that had one of those little pocket transistor radios that has um had a little earplug that you could you know plug into your ear and it sounded sounded terrible but it was still a way that i could listen to music like if i was in the 
car with my parents or if I was, if they thought that I was asleep in bed, I could listen to music. And so um, that was, I remember that was when I first started feeling like this music is mine or something. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not something that I'm sharing with everybody. It's something that I'm listening to on my, by myself. There was a black owned and operated station in Shreveport called KOKA. And at the time I had no idea how amazing it really was, but I did listen to it because it was just, you know, there was only like a couple of radio stations that I could pick up in Shreveport. One of them was the top 40 station, which was Keel, K-E-E-L, um, A-M. And then the, on the opposite end of the dial was K-O-K-A, which was the, you know, the black popular radio station. And they, but the thing that really blew my mind was that I, you know, once I started kind of staying up late and my parents would think that I was asleep or maybe they knew that I wasn't asleep. I don't know, but I thought they thought I was asleep. Um, and I would, you know, get under the covers with a flashlight, read mad magazine and Marvel comic books. And I'd have my earplug plugged in and, uh, I would tune into KOKA radio for the show at midnight called the BB Bird Brain Show. And the guy would play serious like blues and R&B. I mean, the show opened with James Brown's version of Night Train. Tell me, tell me, night, night, night. I'll never forget that. And then BB Birdbrain would talk over it. He was like, this is the BB Birdbrain show. Playing nothing but the blues from midnight until four in the morning. It was just amazing. You know, it's the first place I ever heard Howlin' Wolf. And I remember, I remember I would just happen to be, my older sister's boyfriend had given me some of his old comic books from the 50s, which were included Tales from the Crypt, which had, you know, which were banned in the early 60s because they were too, they were just too uh, freaky and, you know, bizarre for young people's minds, at least so the powers that be thought so. But, um, yeah, so I, was, I remember reading these, these tales from the Crypt magazines and then Howlin' Wolf song Evil came on in my little speaker. And I remember just like, just like getting really scared. <laughs> it's the sound of it was the sound of his voice was just like for a little little kid like me I was it was just like terrifying and yet I couldn't turn it off it was like I had to keep listening to it you know it was just had that huge of an impression on me and then all day the next day I just kept thinking about it you know howling wolf oh my god he must be like really scary <laughs> Oh, 
yeah. And then, the, then I got, then this is crazy too. Then the Rolling Stones had Howling Wolf as a guest on one of the television shows. And I think it was on Shindig actually. I think they, the Rolling Stones brought Howling Wolf on Shindig. And I got, then I finally got to actually see what he looked like and went, well, he's not that scary looking. <laughs> when did you tell us something about him, Brian? Well, when we first started playing together, we started playing because we wanted to play rhythm and blues, and Howling Wolf was one of our greatest idols, and it's a great pleasure to find him booked on this show tonight. It really is a pleasure. Thanks for Howling, Jack. So I think it's about time you shut up and we had Howling Wolf on stage. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Let's get him on. Howling Wolf, bring him on. I thought he's looking. I thought he's going to look like a werewolf or something. <laughs> yeah, that's the little kid comic book in you, dream yeah. dreaming it up. You know, under the covers. Yeah. I love that the scene. It's so clandestine. Parents think you're asleep. You got one earphone in. You got the other ear open to hear them coming. That's exactly Flashlight right. Yeah. Under the. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, just the image of that, and again, it, it gives us a window into, you know, who. You are coming up as a young person, uh, experiencing music, processing it, picking up the guitar, being just a hanger on at the band practice in town and getting a few licks. All those little, just little pieces to the story, but it helps understand. I can liken it to like when I was a little kid and I wanted to surf with the big boys and they might let me paddle out with them a little bit. One of them might let me ride a board or two for a wave or two, but just being there, hanging out, Seeing those guys make those turns, man, made like lifelong impression on me and gave me confidence to, to want to surf like that. So I totally get that. And I, I love uh, the fact that you, and I'm like, tell me about the beginning. You really took me under the covers as a little boy. That's the beginning. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that. Absolutely. And funny that you should mention surfing too, because even though I lived in a place that was totally landlocked, I fantasized about surfing like because that's that was kind of the popular culture of the early 60s was surfing hot rods monster movies and rock and roll you know those were the four most important things in my life and my and my dog you know and my friends and my my family you know but probably in that order <laughs> yeah well having that beach boys record i mean how could you not um, how could you not dream about surfing between the waves exactly. and the girls uh Totally. And, and that's actually, I think, what jogged my the analogy for me was you referencing the Beach Boys and just thinking about surfing. But you, you're, yeah. you're, you have so many musical lives and tentacles, and I don't know that I'll be able to touch on all of them, but I wanted to know, like, what was the like your debut? If you consider yourself like professionally, obviously, you probably played in bands in high school and stuff. But uh, when did your career as a as a performing artist, musician, songwriter, whatever form it took? What was that that first project or era? I mean, um, you know, I was trying to form bands as early as about 12 years old and, you know, would get kids together in the neighborhood. And oftentimes they weren't quite the level that I was at yet. And, and yet I was still young enough where the older kids didn't really want to take a chance on me. You know what I mean? So, um, so I would basically play for anybody that would like listen to me, you know, I, I, I remember one time my cousin, who was older, about seven or eight years older than me, 
he him and a bunch of his friends were sitting around and and he gave me uh he gave me like a dollar to play for them and I thought wow this is like I'm it was my first paying gig basically you know I was I think I was eight years old or something so uh, <laughs> that was but then from that point on you know and he's like you know I'd always always get in the talent shows and the play at the little uh, dances at the YMCA and then I remember I guess when I was a, like a a freshman in high school or something uh the senior that I knew she had a she had an actual gig at a, at a club downtown and asked me to come play a song during her set. And I, I thought that was pretty special. And, uh, uh, and then I started like, you know, then I started like going over to like some, there was some blues clubs and some R and B clubs and stuff like that, where it was mostly um, black bands that were playing. I started trying to go hang over there. And some of the time they would just tell me to get lost, you know, but there was one or two musicians that started seeing me hanging around a lot and, said oh let the kid you know let the kid hang out and listen or whatever you know so that was always cool um eventually i got to sit in with a few of those bands and you know this is uh, i should mention that before that though i met this guy through my brother named john campbell uh everybody called him johnny slim campbell but he was he was i guess that is close to a real deal sort of uh you know um blues revival kind of guy i mean he he was a white guy like but but he he didn't come across he came across like he had like been studying blues his whole life or something and i don't, I don't know how to describe it other than that he pretty much lived the life he was older than me you know he was about i guess probably seven or eight years older than me but he is the first guy that recognized that i had some kind of honest talent and honest desire to learn this um older black music, um, R and B and blues. And I got it secondhand pretty much through, uh, bands like, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, uh, the Animals, uh, and then, then eventually like Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. The Almond Brothers, that was a big one for me. But when he first heard me play and I had been playing along with those kind of records and he said, Oh, you should listen to the guys that they listened. That's when, that's when my, repertoire got a little bit deeper you know that's when when i started like checking out so he, he would loan me records by people like t-bone walker and eventually people like um like robert johnson skip james and charlie Patton, things like that so he taught me uh he's the guy that taught me how to play bottleneck guitar and how to do the open tunings like the older blues guys did so uh, i was real grateful for him kind of taking me under his wing being a mentor and uh, so then by the time I was, that was when I was about four, 13 or 14 that I met him. So by the time I was 16 or 16 or so, I was, I mean, I was playing blues that sounded kind of credible. You know what I mean? I, believe it or not, I've heard, I've heard stupid little recordings that I did of myself back then. I got damn, better than I remember, you know, but uh, it's because of him. It's because of John Campbell. John Campbell was, to me, he was the real deal. I still, he, he did make a couple of records for Electra before he passed away at a pretty early age. Um, and you can check his music out. It's really, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll slide a little in right here. Spare your head on me, baby. It's broken, it don't work anymore. Bear your head on me, baby. 
Put your snakes and potions in the hallway and The key you're holding, it don't fit my door So yeah, I didn't mean to sell you short by saying after high school because it sounds like you're already getting after it well into high school. I was, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and for sure. you're also fortuitous in the two things that struck me. One is that you had a lot of autonomy for a young young man as a teenager to go places and do things. Was that uh, the norm in your community, or were you kind of, uh, you know, an anomaly? Left your own devices. Bring your, have guitar. Will travel. I will. I'll put it this way: my my dad traveled a lot. Actually, you know, his job dictated that he had to drive around the country a lot. He was a sales representative for a um, like a national poultry uh, company that would sell like X amount of you know like thousands and thousands and thousands of chickens and eggs and stuff to supermarket chains and grocery and, uh, and restaurant chains and things like that. So his thing was, uh, you know, this was way before the internet or anything. So basically to, in order to have a relationship with people, he would drive around and meet them and, you know, in their little towns and their communities. And he would, uh, when I was out of school, like during the summer or for holiday vacations or whatever, he would oftentimes take me with him, which I loved. I enjoyed very much. I, I loved being on the road with my dad. He was, he was really, really, um, you know, fun to be with. And, and he taught me how to kind of respect the road. And I'm sure that's where I developed my wanderlust for, you know, and developed the, the, not only the desire to be on the road as much as I have in my life, but, you know, the ability to be, to kind of like, know how to handle myself or take care of myself on the road, how to live and, and to be satisfied with that lot in life as a, as a kind of a, an example of what I'm talking about. Um, when my dad was older, a few, I'd say, you know, the last 10 years of his life or so him and my mom were still together. Um, but like, I guess a lot of older couples, couples do from what I've heard anyway, is that, you know, and they're, you get to to be in your 70s or whatever, and, and maybe you don't share a bed anymore or whatever. That's kind of the thing that so they all the kids were out of the house. My dad basically set up his own bedroom and my mother made her bedroom the way she'd always wanted it to be, which was so funny because my mother's bedroom was like a shrine to all the children. It was basically every every baby photo, every award we ever won, you know, just covering every square inch of furniture in the walls, you know. And then my dad's room looked exactly like a motel room. Exactly. Like a generic painting, a television on a little metal stand in the corner, even a, even a suitcase, uh, folding suitcase thing. It's like, you know, nothing personal about it at all. It's pretty hilarious. And it, but it kind of like it was a, when I saw that and realized that for the first time, I thought, you know, is this how I'm going to end up when <laughs> I spent so much of my life in motel rooms? I don't think so, but I thought it was pretty funny that he did. I mean, you became a really worldly guy, a really, really expansive uh, taste that touched on lots of geographies and generations. And uh, it's obvious you can trace that back to just your ability to just wander and, and seek. And it sounds like you've always been a seeker from the, the, from the very earliest 
and like I told you, I can ramble on for hours. So and me too. Like a million, me too. A million stories, and and they're uh, and a few of them are kind of interesting. Yeah, I find <laughs> most of them to be honestly, uh, you know, yourself and others. And I just want to make clear. Uh, this podcast, one of the impetus or motivation for me to do this is to get these stories down on tape sure. in the voices of those who lived them. Because as we re remarked about Brad and numerous others, you know, tomorrow's not promised and people are getting older and life happens and death happens. And I want to be somebody who can capture and, you know, basically chronicle the culture, but allow it to be done prefer it to be done in the voices of, you know, I could write words, but why not hear the Papa Mollies and the Frenchies or whomever I'm talking to this week? Why not hear it from them? So if you are so called to pontificate for great length, to honor sure. those pivotal experiences, human who, you know, showed you the way, paved the way, rode shotgun with you, whatever it was. I mean, that's what we're here for. And we'll get what we get today and we can talk again because I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we won't get to that after the fact, one or both of us will be like, oh, shit, you should have talked about that. So no worries about rambling. Yeah. I, I really was curious about your your beginnings, and you gave us a, a lot to chew on, to unpack. And um, one of the things I'm going to kind of tie the past to the present now, one of the things that really drew me back into your kind of uh, cauldron of music is Shantytown Underground, which is a new project you're doing in New Orleans, but really rooted in a former version of your professional and personal self 40 plus years ago, whatever it was with the Killer Bees. So I want to hear, uh, yeah. you, you know, as much or as little as you want to talk about the, the, the beginnings of you with reggae music, Jamaican culture, ska, and then being called back to it in New Orleans several decades later. Yeah, it's... Uh... I'll try to be kind of to the point on this because that's a long story in itself. But in 1977, I took a random trip to Jamaica with my um, then wife, my first wife. I got married at a very young age, um, was 19, um, and we had a kid. And we were both kind of very young, idealistic hippies, you know, that had been – we had spent the last couple of years – hitchhiking around the country just taking in adventures and experiencing lots of things and then we ended up in um we ended up in little rock arkansas where her brother and his wife lived and uh ended up settling there for a few years but during this time we we're still very young we uh had never really had any money to speak of we'd always just kind of gotten by on our wits and whatever little cash we could we could uh scrounge up you know she got a job at a grocery store. I got a job working at a gardening nursery, a nursery, you know, plant nursery sort of thing. But I was also playing music and I was already, already started a band and was playing. Uh, it never stopped doing that. It was always the thing that I was doing. I just wasn't making a very good living at it yet. And we had a kid, so I got to figure out how to get a job. Anyway, uh, she got her tax return from that job. And it was, I think it was, it was $800 that she got. And that was like the most money we'd ever seen at, the, at once, you know? So we decided we were just going to blow it. Just like, wasn't even really a decision. We were just like, holy shit, $800. Let's go have some fun. So uh, the first thing we did is we went to our local neighborhood bar. And while we're in there, you know, celebrating, buying drinks, and the, uh, 
there's this guy at the bar and he he hears us talking about like you know well what are we going to do with this money right he goes you should just go to jamaica and we're like oh really what's in jamaica you know well i just got back from jamaica and it's really this magical island paradise and so we're thinking oh that sounds pretty good island paradise you know so um without even really giving it much thought at all we just bought tickets and went to jamaica and uh not knowing any better we flew directly into kingston which at the time was going <laughs> was having this political war going on and this is in 1977 there the two uh political parties the people's national party the pnp and the jamaican labor party the jlp they were having such a bitter war that the entire city was just like under siege like jeep soldiers and jeeps you know rolling by explosions you know less than a block away happening f buildings on fire you know it was crazy right so and we and here we are these these two young naive hippies with a baby in a backpack you know wandering around going what have we gotten ourselves into you know oh my god this is like it's horrible this is a terrible nightmare but fortunately we met this jamaican businessman you know who uh was very nice and very kind and recognized that we were out of our element and needed help and he he took us over to the other side of the island he was traveling over there anyway to do some business and took us over there where we were able to find the paradise that we were looking for, basically camp out on this beautiful, in this coconut grove, which was right on the Caribbean Sea. This is near the town of Negril. And it was very, very, in those days, Negril was very much just like a little fishing village or something. A few European hippies, a few American hippies, but mostly just like, you know, people that had grown up there and um, the Rasta thing was like starting to become big and uh, reggae was like, you heard just everywhere you went, there was just like loud reggae music pumping out of the, these sound systems, you know? So uh, it had a big impression on me. Living here in Babylon, stay down here in Babylon. So many that we can get strong. Don't you in Babylon? We stayed three weeks. We met some friends who who were. Uh, we met some people who became our friends who were uh, Rastafarians that lived up in the hills near where we were staying, and so they took us up to their place um, soon after we got there and. We started hanging out with them a lot. And they were, you know, showing us how to smoke weed out of these big bamboo pipes and called chalices. And, uh, you know, listen, I was, I had a, I had a little cheap guitar with me that, you know, they started showing me some reggae songs and we, they'd play drums and I'd play guitar and play with reggae songs. Anyway, so, you know, we come back to America and felt like my whole mind had been blown and my whole, realm of experience you know everything i thought about as a mu musician up to that point had changed suddenly i felt like reggae was like this new thing that was going to take over the world you know and uh i kind of started at that point i started trying to put it together a reggae band but it took me a couple of years to actually meet american musicians that were even 
open to the idea at all. You know, everybody just kind of like, what, what kind of music, what kind of, what are you talking about? What, you know, that's the only, the only sort of uh, reference that we had at that point, I'm going to say this in the late seventies, Bob Marley had started to develop a following in the United States. who's much bigger in Europe and, you know, but I knew who Bob, I knew who Bob Marley was even before I went to Jamaica. I knew who Jimmy Cliff was. I knew who Desmond Decker was. Um, Toots and the Maytals, maybe. That was it. That was about it. How so? How did that music reach you? I'm just curious. How did how did that land in your ears? Before I went to Jamaica, I, I found it very... I, I remember loving that song, The Israelites by Desmond Decker. That was actually the very first reggae song I remember hearing. I guess that would have been about 67 or 68, something like that, when that came out. And it became a big worldwide hit. I remember thinking at the time how interesting and how different that sounded. And then, you know, soon after that, um, I think I heard, uh, well, Johnny Nash, that was another one. He had a couple of hits, um, which incident, coincidentally, well, not coincidentally, but were, they were uh, Bob Marley songs that, that he made hits of, you know, um, Stir It Up and uh, Guava Jelly. And anyway, so uh, I heard those and liked them. And I would always, you know, I've kind of thought of that as like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And then Paul Simon had the hit Mother and Child Reunion. I guess that was about 73 or 74, maybe. I don't remember, 72. So anyway, it was, on, it was kind of on my radar, but it wasn't big on my radar. I'll put it that way. When I came back, 77, 78, I, when I came back, I started like hearing uh, some British bands like The Clash and The Police were, you know, they were touching reggae stuff. And that's kind of when I started putting it together in my head that like, you know, this hasn't like reggae has a place of, in music that's happening now. You know, music that's like people are, you know, it didn't seem like something, a relic from the past to me at the time. It seemed like the next new cool thing, you know. So anyway, a couple of years go by and I put together this band called the Killer Bees. And I met this guy named Michael E. Johnson. I met uh, a Jamaican guy named Cleveland Williams. And between those two, we had the nucleus of this band, which became the Killer Bees, which... Went on, we went on, you know, we were together uh, almost 20 years. We went on to become, at one point, we were considered to be the number one reggae band in America. We were one of the first American bands ever invited to Reggae Sunsplash in Jamaica. And we toured with all the big reggae artists. And uh, that's how I got my nickname. Papa Molly was touring with Burning Spear. And those guys started calling me that. And then other people started calling me that. And here we are 40 years later. <laughs> So, yeah, let it be known. Winston Rodney, responsible yeah. for the moniker. I love I love that little nugget. What's behind the it, name? It was actually it was actually when it was actually Winston's drummer, uh, okay. Nelson Miller, who he's the one who came up with it. But yeah, everybody was calling me that. So, yeah. And so Sunsplash was what, 83, if I'm if I'm remembering. Um, no, that was 80, 87, 87, 87 88, either 87 or 88. OK, the, at that point, the band, the band at that point, the band had um we had the number two reggae album in America, um, not just now. So when I say in America, we had the number two reggae album on the charts, on the reggae charts. 
we, we were American, but we were the only American reggae band that was charting at all. All the other acts were, I mean, the reason, and people have told me at the time, I don't know if this is true or not, but people uh, that were involved in the reggae journalist, journalists or whatever, they said that, yes, your album would have gone to number one if it hadn't been for Peter Tosh dying that week, which, you know, you know, I don't really, it's like, I just was bummed that Peter Tosh got killed. I don't, I wasn't cared about him knocking us off the number one position at all. I still don't even know if that's true, but that's what I was told anyway. Um, but we did re make it to number two on the charts, which is pretty cool. And uh, Peter Tosh's number one, the album went to number one. That's what I was trying to say that same year. Dreading my beloved. He love your friendship and sharing He'd like the world to be sharing In love Smoke it up in praises Don't take it in phases Laugh it to the fullest In this world of the wisest oh, we, had, we, did, we had a lot of success, you know a lot of, we, we worked really hard for it. We toured like almost 300 days a year. The first 10 years we were together, we toured just nonstop. And uh, that was, uh, you know, seems like a, a couple of lifetimes ago. But, uh, you know, you, you brought it up that I've had several different chapters in my musical career. And it's, it's always amazing to me. I think the reason that that's possible is because, like I was saying earlier about, you know, Brad never, like, looking back with regret that they only had one hit or something like that. I can't, my mind doesn't work that way. I'm always on to the next thing. Even if I've just recorded a new record that I spent, worked hard on and I love it. I'm not listening to that record. Once it's done, I'm on to the next thing. And I, people had just have to tell me whether it's good or not. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I, that's the nature of an artist. I noticed just the interview I did right before yours. Uh, we're talking about an album that's coming out on September 1st. And her whole mind was in the next project, even though we're talking about this project. So I get that. You just on to the next. You're looking forward. And I but in essence, you did look back because you created a band um, that is rooted. Oh, in that's a lot right. Of those Channing Tower. So I wanted to just. First, just to kind of acknowledge. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I got I, I got carried away there talking about it's so the good. killer bees, but yeah, that, that's that's. It's, I wanted to hear the killer bees stuff because that is the theme. Is that, you know you're coming back to, uh, you know, reggae that really predates the killer bees because you're playing the really early formative stuff. But one sidebar is how lucky or fortuitous uh, that you were able to like be adopted by some rastas and taken out to the bush with your wife and child and. And just shown that, you know, I'm sure lots of nine biggies sipping the chalice out in the bush and also getting a, a first person look at the war, the Siaga Manly thing you were talking about. Yeah. So much of reggae culture, uh, the after effects of that conflict, songs, murders, political stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and and you on a whim flew right into the belly of the beast and were in essence like rescued by yeah. by a benevolent businessman and Rasta's from the book. That's a fucking crazy story. Yeah, and to show to show you how naive I was, I actually that first trip to Jamaica, I actually smuggled weed into Jamaica because <laughs> I was because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to find any there. So 
I smuggled weed into Jamaica. And it just like was so thinking about that now, it's hilarious because like the very you you can't, can't even, you know, you can't get out of the airport without people trying to sell you weed in Jamaica. At least that's the way it was with them. Yeah. Um, that's like bringing sand to the beach. I, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, exactly. So then what what was it in whenever 2020, 2021, uh that you decided that you were going to revisit, you know, reggae music for the first time. And I, don't worry, we're going to cover what happened in between a little bit. But I did want, because that's kind of what drew me really into wanting to talk to you and also just my attention uh, was the post you made about Shantytown. And then I went to two shows when I was in Jazzfest. I went to the Lanyap stage and then that same night I, I went out to uh, Chikiwawa. And I love everything about Jantytown, most of all the musicology like or the, the the instrumentation the authentic you know full horns and really deep into like the the authenticity of the reggae so i wanted to know what was the spark that made you put that band together and and just tell us a little bit about Jantytown. okay well i think it's only appropriate that i also point out why i left reggae at a certain point please because um, when I, when I first started playing reggae, I was young enough and idealistic enough to not even really see that maybe I was out of my realm a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, like a white guy from the suburbs, like playing this kind of music. It didn't even occur to me that I couldn't do that in the same way that it didn't never occurred to me that I couldn't go sit in with you know, blues artists on, you know, at black clubs when I was a teenager, you know, it's like, I was, I know there was people who looked at me and just thought I was fucking out of my mind for doing it, but it didn't ever, it didn't occur to me because I didn't see things that way. I didn't see music as being segregated. I didn't see they're like sort of, you know, the thing that's like certainly become, you know, a lot more people have become aware of is like cultural appropriation. And I'm certainly, you know, very sensitive to that, now and but i think you have to realize the times back then the fact that i was being accepted by jamaican artists i never questioned that i was doing anything wrong or that i was like you know ripping off somebody else's culture which in essence i never felt i was doing that i never felt like i felt like i was trying to learn from from trying to uh like respect and appreciate this wonderful thing that was theirs i always knew that it wasn't mine i always knew that i was a, a visitor a musical tourist if you will but i tried to look at it more like i was you know trying to uh get inside the music respect it to like do it as well as i possibly could and the fact that my that some of the greatest reggae artists were telling me yes we accept you you know that was like all i needed i didn't need the other people telling me whatever so Here's when I got out of reggae music was in the in the late 80s, things started to kind of shift a little bit. And by the mid 90s, they had shifted a lot. And I'm talking about trends in, well, you know, first of all, cocaine started flooding into Jamaica. They started getting even more weapons in Jamaica. And that became the culture, just like gangster rap became culture here. You know what I mean? The early days of hip hop, it was like, you know, that was like thing. And then suddenly everybody's got guns and Tupac's getting killed and Biggie's getting killed and everybody's getting shot. You know? So it was kind of the same way in Jamaica. And it was like, for me, 
that was never appealing to me, you know? People like, you know, crime and guns and drug, hard drugs and that shit, never, you know, I got sucked into it because I was immersed in it. I did. I became addicted to cocaine and uh, I found myself like hanging out with gangsters and seeing and doing some, you know, being not, not me doing crime so much, but witnessing crime amongst these people that I was working with a lot. It really, really, really got to me. And um, at some point I just kind of went, you know, now I really do see that I am truly out of my element here. I'm not cut out for this kind of stuff. You know, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm a gangster. I'm not a gangster, you know, but all these people that all these promoters and stuff that I was working with, they were, they were moving tons of drugs and they were doing violent things that I couldn't deal with it anymore. So I, I got out. Also coincided with about the same time that my partner for all those years, my, my musical partner, uh, my business partner, Michael, and my best friend, Michael E. Johnson, also became terminally ill and died. So when he died, there was no question in my mind that the Killer Bees was done. We were, you know, we had gone through lots of band members at that point over the years. He and I were the only two original members left. There was really, uh, you know, it was up to me whether I wanted to keep going with the band, and there was no question in my mind that I did not. So I left. But I never stopped listening to reggae. I never stopped loving it, especially the older stuff, you know, the stuff that really got me into it in the first place, the early rock steady stuff. And then uh, there was always this thing in my mind, too, that all the older Jamaican musicians always told me that they listened to New Orleans music. So, you know, I grew up listening to New Orleans music, too. My grandparents and my Mother is from here, is from New Orleans. Um, so I grew up with that music in my house. Fats Domino, like I said, from the time I was a baby. And everything else, you know, it's like Lee Dorsey and the meet. I saw the meters when I was 12. We saw always related to New Orleans music, Mardi Gras Indian music, brass band music, all that stuff. And it has uh, its root. There's a lot of its roots that are African roots, Caribbean roots. And uh, there's a lot of, a lot of things that... We did in New Orleans, not we, but the earlier generation, the earliest generations of R&B, rock and roll, blues musicians that Jamaicans were listening to and trying to imitate. And that's how reggae and ska came about, was them basically taking these, Jama uh, these New Orleans records and, and also, in all fairness, you know, records from Motown and Memphis and Miami and stuff like that and, and uh, listening to that and playing them at dances, but then trying to put their own spin on it, which ended up being Scott. So uh, for me, I always wanted to do something, you know, with reggae again. I just didn't know what I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to be in this position as an old white guy trying to defend why I'm playing music. That's kind of not really part of my culture or whatever. Well, I started realizing more and more, you know, it may not be part of my, you know, my ancestral culture, but it is part of my personal culture. And it's part of my personal background that I did this for many years and worked with lots of Jamaican musicians and toured all over the world. With it. So that's a part of me, you know, whether you like it or not, it's a part of me. I, I'm not front, you know, I just figured, I just thought, you know, how would I do this in a way that, that felt like it had integrity to me? You know, anybody else, they don't like what I'm doing. Fuck them. I don't care. They don't have to listen to me. You know, I'm, I just, I just got like, I'm my worst critic. I got to please myself. So. Yeah.
from uh, Johnny Sketch, he, wanted, he put on this little festival called Wild Things Festival, right? And he asked me, he said, would you consider doing a reggae set? And I flat out said, no, without even thinking about it. And I said, no, nah, I don't do that. Either. And he said, okay, well, just think about it. I was like, okay, but the answer is no. So then I started thinking about it. I started thinking, about it. you know what? He's actually offered me enough of a budget where I could put together this thing and do it the way I, I've always wanted to do, which was with a big horn section. You know, with and and then I and then I went and saw um, my friends. I've been friends with the guys in the iguanas for years, and they have a side. A couple of them have a side project. Well, Joe Joe Cabral has a side project called Double O Seven with Jonathan Fraylin, and they were doing rock steady stuff. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I can recruit these guys, and we can come up with something that would actually, you know, tick all the boxes for me. So that's how Shantytown Underground started. That's that's it. And so I know I know that's a long drawn out story, but it's it kind of without telling the part about why I got out of reggae music, it doesn't really make sense as much as it does if I include that. I don't find it to be a long drawn out at all. If anything, I think that that was the cliff notes, but you did your best to kind of keep it yeah. focused. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, I, I love the rabbit holes. I love uh, just your awareness, your sort of like uh, understanding of the sensitivities, especially related to Rastafari, reggae, all the stuff we talked about, native to Jamaica, Africa, Garveyism. There's a lot of stuff there that's definitively African, Black, not ours. And you have been exactly. fortunate to be a guest in the culture, in the bands. I mean, I, you had dreadlocks yeah. for a long time and you don't yeah. anymore. I also wore dreads for about 10 years and I made it my mission to have an understanding of, about the culture. But what I realized, and you, you said it really well about being from the suburbs and just like a curious musician, like we weren't living, well, at least I'll speak for myself. I was not living like the separation that they sing of, or nor was my connection to creator in alignment with the Rastas. But I still felt a kinship to the music, to the energy. But you yourself, as somebody who sounds like you were, living at the poverty line with a young family, struggling musician. So I was, so you do have by choice. I mean, by choice, really, I kind of like, you know, I wasn't like I was, a, it was, wasn't like I was born in the ghetto or something, which is a whole different story. You know, I, I realized that I was very fortunate and privileged in that regard. I've never not thought that. Right. And yet I did. And yet I did choose to be, a musician that did have to, uh, not, if not suffer, at least uh, starve for my art for a long time. You know, it's like I lived, you know, lots of places below the poverty line for a long time. But, you know, again, at any time, I probably could have gone and, you know, cut my hair and gotten a job that would have paid better or whatever, you know. But I, again, I'd never even, there was never thought in my mind that I was worried about not being uh, successful in the music business that just never crossed my mind that I wouldn't be because all I really want to do is play music and make records. And as long as I can do that, I'm, I'm successful. I'm not, you know, I'm judging my success by how many records I sell or whatever. Totally. You know, and, and 
I get that 100%. But at the same time, it's just interesting to see how you view that, the prism through which you view that era now, all the years in the rear view, and then coming back to the music. I just have to say, I loved both Shantytown Underground shows. I really felt it was, an, you know, and I'm not an expert, but it was an authentic reflection of those like primordial recordings and influences and the, the musicianship and the instrumentation was so real. I, you know, I was thinking, I really love like Dean Frazier when he leads the band, you know, Firehouse Crew, whatever. And it, it sort of just took me to like that really amazing, full, big band reggae thing that I don't know whether it's too expensive to bring that on tour. But so many reggae artists are using synths for their horns. And, you know, I know that goes back to the 80s and everything. But, but yeah, you know, yeah. it's rare that you get a full big band, all the colors, all the sounds. and the songbook being, you know, like the, the classics. So I just wanted to, to give you props and say how much I love that. And I'm so glad that Mark you. asked you to make that uh, band for that night, because obviously I didn't see that show. So you've been continuing to perform with this group. Uh, do you think that that's going to be something that you'll go back to regularly or is this just? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I, I think that you, you kind of mentioned something about you know, the realities of taking a show that big on the road or something. I I personally spent so many years of my life touring on the road that I, I made a personal decision several years ago that I I don't want to tour unless there's actually a real market for it. And like, in other words, if for some reason I have some record that gets, you know, crazy popular and I can afford to tour the way I want to, then yeah, I'll go on tour. But to, to just do it like I used to do it, we're just like, you know, buy a used van and a trailer and me and the guys load it up and go drive <laughs> all over the country for, you know, gone for months at a time. I'm not doing that ever again. Um, I, I had my days of doing that and they were fun and I would not be, I would not have a national profile if I hadn't have been willing to do that kind of stuff. But, um, but then, you know, I, like you said, I've had several chapters to my career. The Seven Walkers chapter was a huge surprise to me because that actually was a time much late, you know, very late in my life where I did get to actually have those sort of amenities like five-star hotels, tour buses, you know, ro roadies, drivers, tour managers, all that kind of stuff. That was like, that was kind of showed me, okay, this is how you're supposed to tour. Totally. <laughs> you know, this is... This is how this is how people my age are supposed to tour at least anyway they're not supposed to have to i know guys my age that still do that that still you know own the van and load their own gear and all this stuff and i'm just i'm done with that but um the shantytown underground thing though it's out there now people are beginning to realize that it's out there and we are available for hire we will play your festival we'll play your town we'll play your club but you got to be willing to pay for it. You know, it's a 10 piece band. I'm not going to just take us out there and everybody come home broke. So, you know, just, you want to, you want that. We'll, we'll be happy to give it to you and, and uh, hopefully provide a quality product and something that, that your, your, uh, your, your people will like, but uh, we're not going to do it cheap. <laughs>
I w- actually was going to ask about Seven Walkers later, but I'll get into that <laughs> right now uh, because I can't think that's probably what really brought me into you into focus for me. Uh, I, I remember actually the first time that I actually really saw you perform or took notice of the who you were in this community was you sat next to me in the chapel at Bear Creek when like they did that Nigel Hall wedding on one year oh, yeah, you, yeah, you were yeah, next yeah. to me in the chapel and then I saw you perform a couple times that weekend and I've basically been a fan of yours ever since that's about 15 years ago now and uh yeah a lot has transpired but shortly after that two or three years is when uh seven walkers came to fruition so as a lifelong deadhead I always love to see the different uh you know formations and evolutions of the Grateful Dead songbook of the ethos and then having guys like George and yourself playing with Billy, of course, Matt was great. Um, how does that come together? Like, uh, how does that band take shape? And also, I please, if you wouldn't mind, touch on what was it like writing with Hunter? Yeah, uh, okay. I'll, t- I'll answer one at a time because it was like, the way it happened was so random. And so just like, um, you know, it was like, fate intervened i guess you know but um i was at i was playing uh with my band papa maui trio uh at the oregon country fair it was my first time to play oregon country fair and a lot of my friends had been telling me about the history of the oregon country fair that you know the, it was kind of an uh, important uh, place in the history of the grateful dead and that we might be likely to still you know run into uh you know zane kesey or uh mountain girl or somebody living up there right and i've been a fan of i've been a grateful dead fan when i was much younger and i'd say from the like from the early 70s up until like maybe the mid 80s i i was aware of pretty much everything the dead did i bought their lps although i didn't follow them around from town to town i didn't trade tapes with other fans i was not a deadhead in other words i was not you know i had i like i loved the dead during that time especially but i loved lots of bands i loved you know i loved bob dylan i loved curtis mayfield i loved all kinds of music and then i was also getting into reggae during the that um during kind of the later period that i speak of Um, so that kind of took over everything for a while always loved soul music and funk and all that stuff too, blues. So while the dead were important to me in that regard, they weren't like as important, for instance, as like Muddy Waters was to me or even James Brown or what for, you know, but, but I did, but I was, but they were, they were definitely on my radar and I, especially those earlier records, like, uh, you know, I love the, the Europe 72 record was always my favorite record. I'm not sure why, but, oh, and Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. That era, really, really, you know, that that's the one that I think when I got deepest into the dead at a younger age. So then I'm, so I'm backstage after my set at Oregon Country Fair. Fast forward, God knows how many years. This is probably 19, I know, this is probably like 2008, maybe 2000, 2008, I think. Um, I just finished my set, Oregon Country Fair. Um, uh, Bill... Billy comes walking up to me. I didn't recognize him at all. I he just seemed like this nice guy. We were talking. He was. He said he enjoyed my set. Uh, he mentioned that he was a drummer. 
Um, we started talking about New Orleans. We were talking about fishing, all these things. We were just really seemed to be hitting it off, you know, and I didn't, didn't recognize them at all. Uh, it was, it, it, suddenly I noticed there's a group of people gathering around us, just wanting to listen to our conversation. We'll just, doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> it probably happens to him all the time. But so I'm starting to kind of starting to like think like, why are these people like crowding around us? And then I noticed on his hat, he had a little steely on his cowboy hat. And suddenly I remembered he had introduced himself as Bill. And I put two and two together. I said, wait a minute. I said, are you Bill Kreutzman? He goes, well, yeah, actually it's Kreutzman, but yeah. <laughs> So when then after that, that ended up being kind of a crazy magical day. We, um, he doesn't care if I talk about this stuff. So um, you can cut this out if you want to. But I'm, I don't, I think it's pretty interesting. Is that I'd say within, within about thirty minutes after us meeting each other, he goes, he goes, um, you want to drop some acid? And I was like, at that point, you know, at that point I had it had probably been like probably close to twenty years since I dropped acid. I still did mushrooms about two or three times a year, maybe. But, you know, most of the acid that I got, especially during like the 80s and shit, was just terrible, you know? So I just got, I didn't want to like, I quit doing acid because I never knew what, what I was going to get. I was like, didn't want that speed kind of stuff or strychnine or any of that stuff. So so Bill said, you want to you drop some acid? I, I looked at him, I was kind of like, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm ever going to drop acid again, now's probably the time I should do it. <laughs> and before I could even say anything, he goes, trust me, man, this is like the best shit you've ever done or the best shit you ever will do. Um, okay, let's do it. So off we went for like really the next three days. We just hung out together out there in the woods at Oregon Country Fair. And we tripped and we played music and we just hit it off great. And then Monday morning when it was all over, you know, we swapped phone numbers but i kind of thought well i probably won't hear from him again you know but within a day or so he called me up and invited me to come to hawaii which of course i did and then We ended up playing some gigs together, and then he introduced me to Hunter, and then Hunter and I started writing together, which was incredible. And that's a whole different story there. That's because that's a whole different psycho. It's like Hunter. It felt like something, kind of like some sort of sacred trust that I had been uh, entrusted with. You know, that I, I had to. Uh, I took it very, took it very seriously. You know, and wanted to just do my very best. And there's still, uh, there's still about. I'd say dozen songs that Hunter and I started and didn't really finish or did, at least we didn't record. And I was one of my, you know, one of the things that made me the saddest about when he passed away a few years back is that uh, we still had this work in progress that um, I felt like 
well, there was a few, at least a few of the songs that he did sign off on. So uh, I have since, you know, stayed in touch with his widow, Maureen, and with his uh, publisher, um, Alan, who ran... Um, Ice Nine, right? Ice Nine. Ice Nine. Thank you. So um, so anyway, I have the blessing to finish those songs and release them at some point, which I intend fully intend to do. Uh, It's when the time is right. Soon, probably pretty soon. Uh, I'm not getting any younger either, you know, but uh, anyway, an amazing experience. It felt like I remember telling I remember when. Hunter sent me the first set of lyrics, which was King Cotton Blues. I remember just like staring at the page for almost three hours, just hoping that something would come to me. And it did. It was just like amazing. It was like once the words all kind of crystallized in my mind and I'm got and I put the story together and I put the character together that that inhabits that story, the music started coming to me. And then I invited Matt Hubbard over the next day and Matt and I worked out some chord changes. He came up with some very significant contributions as well. realized that the nature of the song you know it reminded me of like a couple of other classic hunter garcia songs like loser and like uh um you know candy man things like that a few others had that kind of timeless sort of uh vibe like it, maybe it's the old west maybe it's like you know the 30s you, you can't really tell you know what i mean and that was actually one of the first questions once I, I realized that I could talk to Robert about this stuff and that we were actually collaborating on something and that he wanted my input, you know, it was one of the first questions I asked him. I said, you know, so much of your stuff seems so timeless. And I think that that's a very appealing aspect of your catalog is that you can, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly when the timeline on these songs is, you know, and he, and he said, oh yeah, that's, that's very much by design, you know. He said the one, he said my, and I don't know if he really felt this way, but he said one of my big regrets was um, the line in Mississippi Half Step where it says, the cue ball is made of styrofoam. He said, I said, I said, once that was recorded and released, I really regretted having used that image because styrofoam pinpoints it to a certain era. <laughs> and I said, Really, I never even thought about that before. He goes, he goes, yeah. Well, think about it. He goes, you know that it didn't happen before they invented styrofoam, right? That's <laughs> like, yeah, pretty, pretty ingenious, really. But uh, that was the way his mind worked, you know. Yeah, that's interesting to hear on so many levels, especially like, well, 
have stuff like early 70s. So that's like styrofoam was like revolutionary product probably at the time. And yeah. now seems this like yeah. antiquated sort of anachronism that yeah, is useless, course. you know, and and yeah. So it almost backwards it becomes timeless again. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I love the magical fairy tale town where Hunter's song takes place. You know, Me too. It is, and so I was going to say, is you slid right in there. An area. A really <laughs> incredible uh, chapter of your career. And of course, you know, just continuing this, this the lineage of, of, you know, the Grateful Dead thing, obviously beyond the band itself. And, and the, of course, the New Orleans connection with, uh, with George Porter Jr. And I knew you, uh, you mentioned you moved to New Orleans a dozen years ago. So that was, I guess, after Desert, uh, Seven Walkers, you moved to New Orleans or in the midst of that? And uh, Yeah, Seven Walkers was Seven Walkers was still together when I moved to New Orleans. And it's, again, it's a move that I had been planning for so many years. And just, you know, life has things in store for you that you don't know. Like, like I raised a family and, uh, you know, my wife and I met in New Orleans in 1982. We got married in New Orleans in 1984. We moved to Austin because the Killer Bees had a manager that lived in Austin in about 85. Now, when I don't think, I know for a fact, I didn't plan on staying in Austin as long as I did. But, you know, you start having kids and they're getting schools and your wife has a job and it's a good job. And, and I'm on the road traveling all the time anyway, so it doesn't seem to really matter where I live. But my intention was always to end up back in New Orleans. So eventually, when the kids were had finished high school and were grown, then there was no reason really for us not to anymore. So I just kind of insisted on it, and we did. That's that's the bottom line right there. I, and I, my, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of my grown kids had had already moved here years earlier to New Orleans, and so I was already coming to New Orleans a lot and staying with them and seeing them and you know working here, playing music here developing friendships that are lifelong friendships so it, a lot of people thought i lived in new orleans way before i actually did move back to new orleans so that's a i never went around telling people i did but people assumed that because of the music that i play and because of my background and all that but uh but yeah so so fine when i finally got back here it things felt like they had kind of like started to kind of make, all make sense again you know I, not to say that i didn't love austin too austin was a great place when I moved there in 85, an amazing place to live. So, so musician friendly and so cheap. And like everything like revolved around music and like, it was so great, you know? So that was, I love having some wonderful friendships that I still, you know, maintain in Austin and still love my Austin people. You know, I need to get back. I haven't played there since before the pandemic. I need to get back. Well, hopefully you can make that happen in the not too distant future. And I love, you know, what you've been up to while you were in New Orleans, uh, the people you play with, the projects. Uh, so I wanted to to just kind of hang out there for a little bit. I got like, I got a lot more questions, but let's go with two more. One New Orleans sure. relevant and one maybe a way back machine one more time. Um, so you, you move there and, and you kind of been doing Papa Molly thing, obviously mentioned Shantytown Underground, but that's relatively new. You know, I was doing a cursory kind of getting reacquainted with your catalog and I was listening to a record you made in 2015. And uh, I really love Make Away. Oh, thank you. So I wanted, I was curious, first of all, tell me about the Cherokee Medicine Man 
and also yeah. uh just making that okay because it sounds like you that is your project with your name on it after you move to the city of new orleans i think yeah. you can definitely hear that in the music so tell yeah. me a little bit about that project and yeah i gotta know about it's reverend goat carson yeah reverend goat carson uh, somebody that i met i met him through uh my friend cyril neville who i've known since the 80s we you know he he actually helped put the killer bees on the map when he recorded with us back in been friends for years and the whole Neville family and uh and then I was doing some work with Cyril and with uh Big Chief Monk Boudreaux and they introduced me to Reverend Goat Carson who was a um you know he grew up in Oklahoma as Cherokee uh his, his came from a um I think his grandfather had been a uh a medicine man and he had that same gift you know where he just had kind of those you know, he did things that were hard to explain. I'll put it that way. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but he would do, uh, he had a, a way of sort of um, knowing things that that he couldn't have possibly known if he did wasn't in touch with some sort of metaphysical vibration on some level. I mean, I'll put it that way. I, 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 the most memorable story I have about him in that regard, although there are many, many examples but the most memorable one was that I was in Montana with my band and it was snow and ice on the ground. And I stepped out of the van and had a guitar case in each hand and stepped onto a patch of black ice. My feet went out from under me, hit my head on the pavement on the ice and was knocked unconscious, got a concussion, was not completely unconscious. Well, um, while I was unconscious, I had this vision of the Reverend Goat coming to me and kind of doing this like Native American sort of dance and enchanting. Uh, and and uh, when I woke up, when I came out, when I came out of this, you know, being knocked out, I was um, I was on my motel bed and Rob Kidd, my dear friend and drummer was there and uh he was kind of like oh shit you're he's awake he's awake and a couple of other people were standing around like because uh, we were up in the mountains and they were wondering whether or not to call like a you know like a like a, a what do you call the helicopters the back uh you know that'll they'll come and get you because that's there the was a medivac yeah, yeah thank you medivac that's right they're were, they were trying to determine whether to call one of those from a bigger city to fly in and get me because the roads were icy and there was like no am ambulances and nobody, no hospitals or whatever. So um, when I woke up, everybody seemed like, oh, well, you seem okay. You feel okay? I was like, yeah, a, little, a little fuzzy, but I'm okay, I guess, you know. And we did a couple of like little random tests and stuff and it looked like I passed them, I guess. So we decided not to call emergency crew but i looked when i while i was while they were sitting there like you know checking my pupils and stuff 
I could hear my phone just kind of like blowing up, like just like one after one, you know, uh, one time after, you know, just ringing over and over and over and over. So finally I said, let, let me see who this is, you know, and I looked at it and it was, it was goat. It was Reverend Goat. And it was about, about 15 missed calls from him. And the first thing he says to me is like, how'd you like my dance? <laughs> yeah. He said, I'm glad, I'm glad you picked up. I was worried about you. How'd you like my dance? So that was wow. just, that was kind of typical of kind of stuff that would happen around Goat Carson. So you made that right. What was the title of that album? Uh, Music is Love. Music is Love. It's so well stated. And that's a very New Orleans Papa Molly project. Uh, do you, I know you you played out recently. This uh, You were shedding a band for a couple gigs this week. So um, I was curious, what do we hear songs from from that page in your in your in your songbook? Yeah. When you do that, do you kind of touch on all the chapters we play something from 30 40 years ago you wrote yeah in 2023 yeah i mean i do i, I when i when i do papa molly shows i kind of tend to stick to the music that i recorded as papa molly and under my own uh name and not like for instance i don't do reggae music on the papa molly show um maybe every once in a while if it's the right person asks me nicely i might do a reggae song or something but um, I save that for Chinatown Underground, and uh, and then I also do, you know, I also have a funk project that I've been doing called Brand New Bag, which is that's just kind of uh, mostly kind of rare covers and some more not so rare covers, like doing little James Brown stuff and doing some kind of rare New Orleans funk records, that sort of thing. Just trying to recreate those as faithfully as possible. But I, that was also created kind of as a vehicle for guest singers, too, you know. Shantytown Underground is kind of a vehicle for guest singers, too. We just haven't found that many people that I'm really hoping that um, I'm, I'm trying to visualize this so that, you know, I can manifest it. That, 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 uh, and if anybody's out there listening right now and you happen to be a great reggae singer, you can be. Male, female, black, white. You can be from Jamaica. You can be from America. But if you really are a great reggae singer, hit me up. Maybe you, you can do a guest spot with Shannon on Underground because I'm looking for people like that. All right. Well, you heard it here first. We'll put out the SOS for Shantytown Underground. And yeah, man, it's just uh, it's great to hear all the different, you know, irons in the fire, as I like to say. And we left more on the table than we covered. Um, so I obviously would love to talk again down the road and we can take some different paths traveled. Uh, but what I'd be remiss in the event we only talk one time. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the Fog City era, because I feel like that is so seminal for so much of the music that thrives at Jazz Fest or at Bear Creek or whatever was the stuff that uh, Dan Prothero was behind. Fog City Records, you made Records of Galactic. You made two albums with Dan, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, two two albums on Fog City, and, and I couldn't agree with you more. That was that was like, um, for me, that was like 
getting a, you know, whereas, you know, Seven Walkers might have been like the third really major chapter in my musical career. Um, Fog City was like really the second major chapter in my musical career because it was uh, as the Killer Bees were were on our way out. You know, my friend, as I mentioned, had become terminally ill and we kept the band together for another couple of years while he was alive for no other reason, just to help pay his medical bills. And, um, you know, he didn't have any other source of income. So uh, I'd say the last couple of years we were together, a lot of that was just us trying to keep Michael, you know, in um, financial, you know, straits to kind kind of help his situation out. And, um, but, uh, but I was already working on the Fog City music at that point, And I'd already gotten this deal with, with Dan Prothrow. So yeah, without a doubt that, that helped give me some sort of national profile and credibility in a scene that I was not that familiar with, which was the, for lack of a better word, the jam band scene. I, uh, you know, working for almost 20 years in a reggae band, we really didn't see much of that. We weren't invited to the, you know, the Bonnaroo festivals and that sort of thing. But as soon as I came out with this record on Fog City, suddenly those doors were open to me, and I was doing, doing all these festivals and playing with, uh, you know, all these different jam bands and stuff, and um, which I fit right into really. I mean, because that the nature of my music has always been improvisational, um, and um, I don't know, it just it was very very fortuitous for uh, for me to, to meet Dan Prothero and for him to want to record me back. That album, that first album, Thunder Chicken, came out in said it really did set the tone 15 years or so of my life was like playing these festivals and getting to get be friends with people like widespread panic and fish and um and i guess that's really how i got ended up meeting billy too you know was the um eventually i gained a reputation in that world and he he told me that his the reason he was at my show that day was because his uh girlfriend at the time now his wife amy she had had one of my cds and, and he liked it and wanted to come see my show. So that's how we ended up meeting. So, yeah, Dan Prothero, Fog City Records, had a major, major impact. And, I, and honestly, I still those, I still am very proud of those records, too. Th- uh, Thunder Chicken and Do Your Thing. Do Your Thing especially, I think, I think it really holds up really well. Honey Bee are always in my head Like that famous photograph That's hidden underneath your bed Honeybee I believe you when you say 
content. I, I love that recollection right there with regard to like Fog City putting you on the map and then the doors flying open. And uh, yeah, I, that's what I heard first when after I sat next to you in the chapel, saw you at Bear Creek when I looked you up. Mm-hmm. Those are the first, those are the projects, the Thunder Chicken and Do Your Thing and kind of then just followed wherever you went from there. And I think you can kind of trace probably the M&M's thing, the brand new bag back to that sure right it, sure. it all kind of springs out of that i was curious uh because i know you produced records uh-huh. other artists did, did that did you learn under the tutelage of dan or does that predate Fox? well i was already i had already produced some reggae stuff and some soul stuff before that but dan's uh production value absolutely made me i learned a lot working with him i'll put it that way i learned a lot and there was, and a few other people too, but especially Dan. Dan's, uh, Dan taught me something that I'll never ever forget. Um, is that, you know, if you like the way a certain record sounds, you can go to the source and kind of those people that made those records. A lot of them are still alive, and they're they're happy to talk about it in most cases. That's what Dan did. He told me about himself. He's he went and he talked to the engineer that engineered James Brown's rec, James Brown records. He went and talked to the engineers that you know that worked at muscle shoals and stuff like that he he went he did that he worked you know any chance he could he would talk to the people that you know that uh were around when they were making records at cosmos and when they were making records at royal studios high records and all that stuff. he you know those sounds that we all kind of like fell in love with he he went the extra distance and tried to seek out the people who were there when they were making those records and asked them how they did it where did you put that microphone? Where did you, you know, what sort of uh, tape delay is that? What what sort of compression is that? What sort of microphone is that? You know, so anyway, uh, makes total sense that you, do, I mean, I did that with musicians. I would, I would go and try to find older musicians who would show me things, but it never dawned on me that the, the engineers and the tech people behind the scenes might still be alive and might still want to talk about it and share that too, you know? It, I mean, and now, as much as I was into the Beatles and the, how revolutionary their recording techniques were, and I knew about George Martin, for years it never really dawned on me that Jeff Emmerich was just as important, you know? <laughs> as an engineer, he was the one who was actually doing a lot of that experimental stuff that made that sound so great, you know? And you, you tend to, at least in my experience, the, the producers, the engineers often remember the specifics a bit better too, whether it's... Yeah. Uh, years on the road or the, the, the drinking, drugging, or just age. I, I noticed like producers uh, and engineers, uh, you know, though they have firm detailed recollections of the sessions of the specifics. And so I can see how soaking up the game from them is a, is a great education. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of, cause you know, I know producing is a big part of your bag and I wanted to just kind of get the 411 on that as well. You've been super generous with your time. And like I said, we left a lot on the table. So hopefully down the road, we could do it again. Um, but I want to say thank you. And at the end of every episode, I try to ask uh, the artist to let us know what's next, either what's happening now, what can we look forward to, what's hot in the life of Papa Mali, wherever you want to like send people after they enjoyed this uh, lovely conversation. Okay. I'll, um, like I say, I am really very much, um, I do like to talk. And uh, so that's, that's a, uh, kind of obvious but uh i don't really like to live in the past at all i do like to keep moving forward and that keeps me interested in what i'm doing and hopefully 
I keep doing things that are interesting to other people too. But right now I'd say the things that um, I am really the most excited about are um, some of these, some, some singers that I've been working with, like um, one in particular, Lynn Drury, I've just produced her new album and it's not out yet. And uh, I'm just blown away by her as a songwriter, as a singer, as an artist. I think that she should be, you know, that I'm hoping that this record will be the one that kind of takes her to the next level because she certainly paid her dues and deserves that. And this record is amazing. And I'm really proud of the production that we did on it. And, um, and everybody played so beautifully on it. Uh, but it's the songs, it's her songs that just blow me away. Um, I think she's one of the great songwriters that's out there these days. And then another great singer songwriter that I didn't have anything to do with her album, but I'm so into it. And I got to play, I've gotten to play a few shows with her lately is, is uh, Jen Howard. She's just this incredible singer and her new album is amazing. And I suggest that everybody buy it and go listen to it. it Ivan Neville is a guest on one song, but uh, you know, he'll, he'd be the first to tell you too, that it's like, her voice is the star of the show. She's an amazing singer. Find some makeup, I'll make sure you don't look fake. So what you mean is, see your weakness, there's a lot at stake. My mind's made up, but I'm fired up, come on, behave. Not time to hold on, come on, they all come too far to cave. To each his own, I got this microphone. And a great songwriter, too. So I, I just, uh, nothing but good things to say about those two projects, which are uh, those two of the things I'm staying very busy with right now. That's awesome. And thanks for the tip on both of the Lynn and Jen. Yeah. And I feel like there is a, a plethora, there's a revival of sorts of, of incredibly talented, unique uh, female vocalists coming out of the Crescent City at this time. I'm not going to take any of the shine away from the two you put on. Another one is Cole, Cole Williams is another really great yeah. uh, singer that's an artist and a humanitarian, and I really love everything she's doing. Um, also, I've been working with a singer out of out of New York, out of Harlem, New York, named Carlton uh, Jamel Smith. We just did a show at Tucatinas, and he is a real deal old school soul singer. We, uh, he and I recorded um, a track with uh, the Brand New Bag. We, we did some shows with Brand New Bag two weeks ago or one week ago. I can't remember. Recently. And then we went in the studio while he was still in town and recorded a track that I wrote. So that's another thing I'm doing. It's like incredible. I'm just trying to keep diversified, trying to work with people that I enjoy working with and just keep on putting out music and Hopefully, um, folks will keep listening to it. <laughs>
yes indeedy. As usual, I want to offer a deep bow and gratitude and huge thanks to Papa Molly. Malcolm, that was a very heart-filling, informative, illuminating, emotional, uh, just, a, just an incredible musicology on your behalf. Thank you for taking us through your life, your career, your passions, your inspirations, your friends, peers, influences, geography, genre, Jamaica, New Orleans, and all points between. This is why I do this shit, fam. I learned so much. I've been a fan of Papa Molly from afar uh, for like a long-ass time. And to have that conversation with him, to get the 411 on how it all came together, just really, uh, I love that shit. And I, and I loved that conversation. So thank you, Papa Molly. And, and that's what we're trying to do around here. The Up for Life podcast is deep exercises in musicology, influences, inspiration, overcoming adversity, and and Papa Molly, you know, he laid it all out there, and he was really uh, incredible uh, reggae stuff. And I oh mean, I could just rehash the whole thing, but I just you know, just going to nod and bow my head and just give thanks. We're listening to Oswald. Live from Cologne, Germany in 1980. One of my low-key favorite reggae bands of all time. I always give the crown to Black Uhuru. But Aswad is fucking incredible. So, uh, if you're curious, A-S-W-A-D. Aswad. From like the late 70s through the late 80s. Roots reggae style. Very danceable. Pretty sure they're from the UK, but they have, uh, you know, West Indian roots like so many and uh like we always do about this time the vibe junkie jam i'm only going to play one jam this week this ep i always say this week maybe i should start putting out episodes on a weekly basis anyway for the vibe junkie jam on episode 70 i am going to play some music from the late great brad hauser who papa molly spoke so beautifully about and told such just heart-filling, emotionally beautiful stories and reflections. Um, so Papa Molly's actually not on this track, but Brad Hauser is, uh, prominently, I might add. It's from uh, Critter's Buggin', 1998 album called Bumpa, the first song, which is called Fluoride, and is powered by a killing Brad Hauser bassline. I was thinking I had... Uh, both Skerrick and Mike Dillon from Critters Buggin' on the pod. Uh, so this is still close to home, and I'm stoked. I've always loved this record, and particularly this song. And when we're thinking about Brad and some of his lasting uh, contributions, you gotta, you got to look towards Critters Buggin'. And, and Mike Dillon and Skerrick both shared uh, voluminously about their their friendship and the grief and the music that they made with Brad and and you know before Russell Batiste passed I would say that, that the outpouring of of grief and sadness and also pride and and love for Brad Hauser was you know equally touching moving and when I spoke to Papa Mali it was right on the heels of that and then obviously 
in the interim month or so, uh, I guess month and a half, Russell Batiste passed, and that's why I wanted to play something for Russell at the beginning of the episode. And I want to also encourage people to check out uh, Stanton Moore and Adam Deitch's conversation about Russell Batiste on YouTube. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. I posted it on social, but basically it's two icons, Stanton and Adam Deitch, one New Orleans cat, one an adopted son of New Orleans and uh, in Adam, and, and they both just... This is, Russell was still alive at this point. This is a year and a half ago. This conversation takes place as part of uh, Stanton Moore Drum Academy, which is a subscription-based thing. But they put this 10 minutes of talking on YouTube, and about seven of the 10 minutes is focused on Russell Batiste. So I was going to play that too, but I didn't want to necessarily encroach on Stanton's material and yada, yada, yada. So uh, with respect to that, uh, just check out the show notes, click the link, and you can listen to Stanton and... Adam Love on Russell Batiste. But from right here, right now, we're going to dive into Critters Buggin' Fluoride 1998. Brad Hauser, rest in peace. This is the end of the episode when I always like to sign off, say goodbye, job bless, rest easy, Brad Hauser and Russell Batiste Jr. Uh, a moment for all the death and destruction and confusion in Israel and Palestine. Uh, love y'all. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time, which is going to be in like just a few days because I'm doing back-to-backs and the next one's a doozy too. Peace. Poison is a little clipping from the Wall Street Journal, 426, 1990, and it says, You may not like it, but it's true. The central nervous system of a human being bears some surprising similarities to that of a cockroach. If it kills a cockroach, it'll kill you too. It's doing a wonderful job of that.
salicylic acid. The first use is to fluoridate the water. Its second use is to remove the hair and the gore from hides at the slaughterhouse. Sodium fluoride is the main ingredient. Awk, squawk, and sarin nerve gas. This is this product used to fluoridate water with in the United States. Gives you a nice warm fuzzy feeling, doesn't it? Thank <laughs> you.